Some say he was born on a distant planet 4,538 years ago Others say he was sold for $500 To a traveling carnival sad show But all I know is Zippy! He's the cool and cool whip Zippy! He's the blast in bean dip Watch out, yo! Cause here he comes A totally modular fellow The maraschino in jello Zippy! What a baby boomer Zippy! He's a real consumer If the rinse cycle of sorrow is spoiling your day Then there's a polka dotted pinhead heading your way he put the whiz in the cheese His life's a patio of fun A heart as pure as Zippy From Levittown to Rigel Zippy It's tackles off and Dido The 24-hour shopping mall is where he's at Are we having fun yet? Liz and Honey, you bet Zippy From Mars to any Main Street Zippy Captain Crunch and Lunch Week The polka dotted pinhead Networking his way Into your official heart today Zippy, zippy, zippy Zippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy-dippy
but Zippy was a weekly syndicated strip syndicated by myself um, uh, from 1976, so 10 years previous to the daily, it was a weekly. Um, did you ever think, like, when I mentioned um, how prolific, did you ever think about that, like, in terms of your contemporaries, this massive volume of work that you have and kind of look back yeah. at that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of scary. It's like a giant pile. I don't know. Um, I, I guess, I guess I'm a little compulsive. I like to work a little every day, pretty much. I mean, I do take days off, but if I go for, um, you know, a vacation of a few weeks, I get kind of itchy, and I feel like I should be drawing, which is partly why I started doing travel sketches, because I felt probably that was some sort of compromise between um, doodling and and drawing comics. So at least I was keeping my my rapidograph busy, but yeah, it's some sort of compulsion. I have to just work a lot. When I first started doing the daily zippy, um, I actually was a little taken aback by the idea of it, even though I had this large pile of work already behind me, because doing it every day on schedule seemed kind of frightening. I remember when the San Francisco Examiner first approached me to do a daily, which was a year before it went into national syndication. <clears throat> I remember them asking me, and I thought, oh, great, they want to just use my weekly strip, but I can charge a lot more. And they said, no, a daily. And I said, you mean like a job? And the guy said, yeah, like a job. He even told me I had to join the union. And I think my first response was a very qualified yes but only if I could have a few months to run backlog strips as as I felt I needed to so I could get into the rhythm of a daily or to see if I could. And within six months, I I was in the rhythm, but it wasn't comfortable. It took me years to get, probably five or six years to get comfortable with it. And now it's just like, it's just like, uh, like breathing. It's just very easy for me and seems very natural. Do you do like a daily uh, routine with like as far as like a regimented work schedule of having to get a certain amount of panels yeah. done? Well, yeah. I mean, I I I work five five days a week and sometimes six. I try not to do six every week, but in the five days I have to do seven strips. So on some days I just do one. On some days I do two. Uh, and my routine is pretty much the same Monday to Friday. I get up and have breakfast, and then I go for a walk. And on my walk, which is at a nearby um, kind of state park, it's kind of a wacky place called um, Gillette Castle. It's an old uh, turn-of-the-century eccentric structure built by a, a well-known actor named William Gillette, who was famous for doing Sherlock Holmes around 1900 to 1920, and it's his estate, which has been turned into a state park, and I walk around it. Um, there's railroad tracks and goofy tunnels and buildings all over the place, and when I finish my walk, I usually have a strip. I keep a notebook in my pocket, and they, the strips often come to me on the walk, literally like a, like a, a radio signal or something entering my head. <laughs> Sometimes they come full-blown, Sometimes all I get is the first panel. Sometimes I only get the end, the last panel. 
and then I come home and my little editor voice inside my head takes over and tries to organize it. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, joining the union. Um, was there's, What did you think about that after you had been involved in... Now, was it necessarily unionizing that you guys had tried with the underground movement, but like cooperative or collective eyes in the work? Uh, well, my underground comics days, um, as with all of the underground cartoonists, um, compatriots of mine at the time, it was kind of a um, it was kind of a collective, and I think the publishers and the cartoonists were basically in it together, even though we occasionally uh, had problems with each other because nobody was making a lot of money, and it was done for love. It was done not entirely f not for money. I mean, obviously there was there was money to be made. <clears throat> I remember after Young Lust came out, I, I started to be able to make a. a semblance of a living out of comics, and I was very happy about that. But we were all in it together to make something happen that was that we all felt was important, and that was an alternative to the um, to the then stultifying world of superhero comics and kids' comics that were coming out of mainstream. Uh, well, for so, you, you know, we, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to we 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 were working. Um, in a way, even though we were all doing different kinds of comics, we were working for a common cause in a way, almost like an art movement. Now, for you, um, comics were also kind of uh, kind of lost the word I was going to use to make the comparison of a, of a separate choice of than doing art and or fine art, I should say, because I mean comics are your art. Um, do you want to speak to that specific choice of utilizing comics as your artistic output? Of comics as art? As or your what? personal artistic output. Well, there's a pretty direct um, a line from my early self, pre-cartoonist, to my cartoonist self, because I didn't come to comics through, through comics, through being a fan of comics. When I started doing comics in late 1968 in New York, it was because my paintings and my drawings were getting kind of cartoony, I think partly in response to pop art, which had some influence on me. Um, and this was in the, you know, the during the early to late 60s. And partly because I started to notice the early work of both Kim Deitch and Robert Crumb in underground papers. At first, I remember I didn't really even distinguish between the two. I just thought they were the same person. And I just felt, especially with Crumb stuff, I felt that here was this um, here was this guy that was saying thoughts that were going on in my own head and putting them into comic form and how much fun it was. I had loved comics as a kid, but I pretty much had lost any interest in paying a lot of attention to them from probably the age of 12 and or 13 up until uh, the late 60s when I started to notice them again. So I came to comics through drawing and painting. Unfortunately, that meant I didn't really know, know the language of comics, although every kid in America absorbed a certain amount of it just by osmosis. I, you know, out of arrogance and, and uh, you know, probably marijuana, <laughs> I just started doing comics without thinking that I was unqualified, which I was. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But at that time, it was lucky for me because 
um, it wasn't so hard to get your work published as long as you were looked upon as um, trippy and surreal and weird and you drew, to the, drew your comics to the correct proportions, which was rare. <laughs> um, you, you got your stuff published. I brought my first half-page tabloid-sized comic to Screw in um, early 1969, and uh, that was a good part of the reason why Steve Heller, the art director, said he published it, because it was drawn to the right proportions. <laughs> and he didn't really care much about the content. He knew it was, you know, it was weird and, you know, um, like I said, weird and surreal were two of the major requirements, and I fulfilled that easily. But I learned while I while I drew, while I while I worked. It took me if you if you really were to study my first year or two, and and then you can see it a little bit in the my new Lost and Found book. I didn't reprint a lot of my very early work because it's too excruciatingly horrible to look at. But I, I put a few in there, and if you look at that those strips, and then look at just a year or two later, you'll see like. And I see now, actually, for the first time in that book, I see this huge progress I made so rapidly because I started at zero. I didn't know what I was doing. It's uh, one of the most profound things I see in the book is also the stylistic changes up and develops developments, and it's really interesting to see that growth of an artist and um, to really see where you're playing and learning. Um, that's really fascinating. Was there things you kind of, looking back, going through it, you kind of learned about your own work? Sure, yeah. Um, and of course, like, the, the the book is is winnowed down from from stuff that didn't get in, and so I, I had to look at it all, <laughs> and I had to kind of relive it all. Um, I, I used to it used to be very wince making for me to look at my early work. It no longer is. I, I sort of forgive my earlier self for the struggles I had to go through. But I uh, I, I can see that that really um, astonishingly quick re learning process that I went through. I still had a lot to learn after a few years. It took me another f many years after that. I mean, today even today, I, you know, I, within the past two years, I've learned very specific things about drawing that I didn't know two years before. And that I, it's a process of hard work and accident and discovery and observation, all these things at the same time. And for me, um, having come from a little more of a fine art background, having spent most of the my, my late teenage and early college years um, looking mostly at painting both old and new and, and drawing. Um, I tended to look to to I don't know, people like Reginald Marsh and Edward Hopper a little more than I would at at Harvey Kurtzman or you know, or uh, Will Elder mm -hmm. as much as I loved their work. I I tended to find my artistic influences and inspirations in, in the work of of artists who were, who were not cartoonists, who were somewhere in another world between um, uh, fine artists and and kind of uh, almost journalists. That's how I look upon people like Hopper and, and Marsh, who were chronicling their era mm -hmm. and, um, in great detail, and I learned a lot from both of them. There's something about the way of capturing particular moments in time. 
Yeah, and and trying to put that, you know, trying to find a way to use that in comics because, um, you know, the, the, a panel is a, a panel is a is a space in which you draw. It, you, anything can happen, and it's no, a panel is no different from a drawing by a, a non-cartoonist or a painting by a, a either a well-known or not well-known painter. It's just, it's it's the picture plane, and you can do whatever you want with it. Not only in content, but in mood and and um, um, all the things that go into to making art. And so I always felt that those kind of things needed to find their way to express themselves in my comics as much as the traditional aspects of comic art, like um, storytelling and um, character development. Well, it seems like in some ways your characters kind of their development they they have this own odd reality which wouldn't develop in a uh, in a traditional sense within most comics. Well, um like the toad yeah, I, and Zippy. Yeah, well they my characters um I did, there's a strip I think it's a 10 or 12 page strip in my uh, Lost and Found book that's called Cast of Characters. Mm-hmm. And that was that was my attempt in 1980, and I've done it several times since then. But that was my first big attempt at, at trying to understand who my characters were, because by 1980, the characters that even you know, that that are kind of the the consistent cast that you see in my strip today, Zippy and Griffy and Mr. Toad and Claude Funston and Shelf Life. Um, these characters all were pretty much developed um, during the 70s and maybe the early 80s. And in 1980, I thought I would project a scenario where I would go into the future and I would be wheeled up to a retirement home for old underground cartoonists. And there would be all the old, uh, all my compatriots from the um, 60s and 70s, all in various states of decay and sitting in wheelchairs. And through uh, dialogue with them, I discovered that behind the retirement center are bungalows in which all of the cartoon characters of all of us, all the all of us have created, live. That they're that they're real live people, just like us. And one by one, they they confront me, and and I figure out who they are, and it's kind of hopefully funny, but it's uh, painful as well. You know, Freud once said that all of the characters in your dreams are you, mm-hmm. and I kind of um, extend that into thinking uh, that all of a cartoonist's characters are him or herself, in one degree or another. And it's this was my attempt at understanding what that who is who is behind those masks, you know, what they're all about. Have you gotten to an understanding of what those characters represent for you? Well, they, yeah. Um, in that strip. Yeah. At, well, it wasn't. Uh, yeah, it was somewhat cathartic <laughs> at the time. I remember um, because I was trying to be honest, and so I had to admit that Mr. Toad was, uh, to some degree, um, an edible thing. It was my father. And I was trying to kill him and whatever. <laughs> um, I. I had 
I've had dreams about most of my characters at different points, so I was, I've worked I've worked out some of what they they mean to me through that. Um, I think um, to go back to the Freudian idea that every, all your all the characters are manifestations of of oneself. Um, I think that is true, and so <clears throat> I can see that that there's a kind of an attempt to integrate all those fractured parts of me when I'm doing my comics, because I can have my Griffey self, my kind of critical, supercilious, annoyed self, who um, is always looking f for you know, some sort of satirical jab to make it the foibles of all the fools around him. I can see that part of me trying to reconcile itself with my more accepting happy self, the zippy part of me. And uh, I think I I don't I don't really feel they have to integrate. I just like to have them interact. <laughs> uh, integrate integrating maybe a goal of some sort of psychiatric um, <laughs> situation, but I don't, I, I think integrating would probably kill them for me, so I want to keep them apart, because where there's tension, there's interest. So I like to deal with that tension, and so I guess I'm exploring all those, you know, parts of me that are, that are uh, at work with all the other parts. I mean, part of me is, is, is a redneck uh, hillbilly, you know, <laughs> where that, I mean, Claude Funston, in the past few years, has has come to represent in my daily strip anyway, um, more than he used to anyway, a kind of a, a, this right wing political nut. And when I first created him, he was just he was just a, a redneck. Um, his politics were not important. He was just he was just um, somebody that I thought of as the opposite of me that I could possibly get. But now I see, somewhere inside me, is this um, is this right wing, uh, you know, evolution denying uh, Tea Partier, and I think what that means is, you know, what that's all about is that there is no one. You're never one thing. Contradictions uh, are embodied in everybody, and if someone tells you they're a uh, uh, an ardent conservative somewhere in an ardent conservative there are some liberal tendencies and somewhere inside every liberal there are some conservative tendencies so I guess you know I, I, when I'm dealing with these characters I'm trying to look into the dark corners of my soul and see where what's there um, I'm not so much trying to be um, you know I'm, I'm not interested in kind of humor you see in, in most daily strips. I'm more interested in a kind of literary approach, I guess. I was, uh, that strip really, I got a lot out of that, especially seeing the re retired cartoonists and being you did this strip 30 years ago and looking at it now, and that's about the age or under the age they would be in that home and kind of yeah. figuring out who is who. Yeah, I, I guess that would have to... <laughs> It would still have to be a little bit in the future, but not much. <laughs> it's funny because uh, two or three of them are dead, of course, unfortunately. So I, I didn't um, 
provide a uh, uh, footnotes as to who everybody was in that strip. But in, in the early scenes, there there are uh, Rory Hayes and Jim Osborne are there. I remember and both of them have passed away, and Gilbert Shelton was there. Crum. Diane, Spain, Justin Green, Kim. <laughs> Maybe they'll tell me what they thought of that strip. <laughs> when that strip came out, I didn't. I, I was expecting everybody to say something to me, but with the exception of Justin and maybe Kim, I can't remember that there was a there wasn't a lot of comments. But maybe there will be now finally. Um, I'm want to talk a little bit about Rory Hayes because in this book you do a strip about him, and mm -hmm. I think he's the only cartoonist you write specifically about. And this was done before he had passed away, if I'm correct. And I'm wondering yes. why was Rory especially fascinating well, to you and important to you? Well, Rory stood out. You know, when I came to San Francisco in 1970 to to stay, I'd visited before, but when I came out to actually move and stay, um, there were two places where underground cartoonists tended to, well, there were maybe three places where underground cartoonists tended to hang out and, and either um, meet accidentally or, or assume others would be there. And, uh, one of them was Gary Arlington's comic book store on 23rd Street and near Mission Street in San Francisco. That was the main place. And the, another one was um, Don Donahue's storefront printing place, Don Donahue being the the guy who published, uh, printed, and published some of the earliest um, crumb stuff. Apex Novelties was his company. And um, Rory lived in Donahue's storefront in the back, and he hung out a lot at Gary's store. And so I would see him, and he was, he was not, he was not like the others. <laughs> he was a. I mean, the minute you saw Rory, you knew he had he was sort of an interloper in this world who didn't quite belong there. He was younger than us first. He didn't have any of the hippie uh, uh, attributes you know, of, of clothing or hairstyle or anything. He was polite in a kind of odd, formal way. He seemed sort of boy-like and um, innocent, which he was, but there was a dark side of him lurking under the, underneath the surface that you could sense. There was something dark and weird and possibly dangerous going on underneath there. He seemed to me to be the way maybe some, sort of like a, a folk artist or an, or an outsider artist might be. I, I've never really, I've never personally known a folk artist, but I, I think Rory was one. So I guess I have. Um, he seemed very much um, apart from everybody, but he wanted very much to be one of us. <laughs> he had gained acceptance for the first time, I think, in his life through Gary Arlington, and Gary had published his early comics. Um, and Rory thought, I think, <laughs> I'm, I'm projecting here a little, I think Rory thought he was just he was one of us. He was a cartoonist like the rest of us. But he wasn't. <laughs> he was a very odd um, character who 
who had a um, who had a strong primitive quality. And as with most primitive artists, he didn't recognize that he was primitive. He didn't see it. When he drew his bizarre characters with, with a what was what could only be described as a folk artist's kind of uh, approach, with um, very little of the skill that you would normally associate with comic art. I don't mean that he was without skill. He had loads of skill, but he, he didn't have the skills. Of he, he didn't have the normal skills of narrative um, comic drawing, nor did he draw things in a way that, that you know the average comics reader would accept. He did very um, psychologically raw kind of stuff. And um, I remember he kept a notebook, which I hope is going to be published someday. I know Dan Nadell is doing a book of Rory's pre-comic stuff. I don't know quite what that is, something mm -hmm. he discovered. But anyway, Rory kept a sketchbook slash notebook with him, which he would show me occasionally. And it was, you know, just um, amazing stuff. Just, uh, you know, Rory... Rory was a very tortured soul underneath his placid exterior, and it all came out in his work. And I remember once he gave a he, he made movies. He made eight millimeter movies with his brother Jeffrey, um, previous to to being a cartoonist. So these are movies he made as a teenager, and he showed them one night in Don Donahue's storefront, and he narrated them. They were silent eight millimeter movies, so he they were just four minutes each, and he narrated them. And at one point, he slipped from a third-person narrative, saying things like, and now the the monster moves in to kill the Pooh Bear, and the Pooh Bear screams in horror. And he switched suddenly to the first person and started screaming. And he he was the both the victim and the attacker. And it was, it was all in the first person. And now I'm going to kill you, Pooh Bear. And he just kind of lost control. It was a very chilling moment. So I mean that kind of thing, you know. We were all sort of the rest of us were, um, you know, suave, sophisticates, and, <laughs> and Rory was this raw child. You know, this raw. Um, I, I guess you might, if you, uh, to my knowledge, Rory never had any kind of therapy or ever dealt with his problems. He he became a, a terrible um, speed addict, mm -hmm. amphetamine addict and um, basically died of it. He was, was he schizophrenic? I think that I'd read well, that somewhere. Or you know, like I was about to say, I was about to say, Rory never had therapy, so I, there's no official diagnosis of what happened to Rory, you know, what mm -hmm. was going on there. His parents were oblivious. Um, they were, I met them both, they were both children, like him in a way, they were very, they were, they were weird. His father was a, was a bellhop in a Holiday Inn. Um, who tried to supply, when he noticed that Rory was hanging out in this comic book store and um, uh, seemed to be, uh, uh, seemed to be, his work seemed to be enjoyed by people and Rory had a certain reputation, his father tried to capitalize on it by asking us if we wanted to, to um, for him to get us hookers and, and, and dope. So, I mean, his family was... You know, when I talked to Jeffrey, Jeffrey came out fine. I don't know if you know Jeffrey Hayes, but I know a little bit of his work. He does. Yeah, uh, Rory's, Rory's books, brother. Right? Rory's brother is is Mr. Normal. He's he's a well-adjusted gay man living in New York doing children's books, and 
you know, you wouldn't suspect he was Rory's brother at all. So I, I think Rory probably had a brain chemistry problem of some sort, undiagnosed, untreated, and um, it both it both uh, uh, informed his work and destroyed him. He was a very tragic figure in a way. Mm-hmm. It's it, I mean it's interesting them like getting to know more about him through the books that Dan's been putting together and uh, really fascinating, interesting. Yeah, work. I mean, the, the, like I said, the thing about Rory is Rory Rory would be the last person to know why he was being appreciated because he didn't he he never you know he didn't have the sophisticated kind of mind that could. If he did, he wouldn't do what he did. You know, he was he he was real. He was the stuff you were looking. Roy wasn't doing a style mm-hmm. when he drew. Roy was drawing from his gut, from his from his um, his soul and his his brain. He wasn't. It, there was no filter between Rory and his work. He was he was um, he was bleeding onto the paper. Like I said, it was really primal. Very which I primal. I think is pretty apropos. Yep, yep. and I remember. Talking to Crum about this a few times, and Crum having the same, the same take on Rory.
when you and Art Spiegelman were doing Arcade, um, you would put Rory was one of the folks you'd have in there as well as other stuff, like you'd have you know, S. Clay Wilson and you would have yourself or Spiegelman um, and then like William S. Burroughs in there and I'm wondering, what was some of this collecting these kind of diff very divergent types of works together in Arcade? Well, Arcade began well, Ar Arcade, as everything, morphs from something else. So Arcade morphed out of Short Order. Mm -hmm. Short Order was a comic book that Art and I started to put together when we first met in 1971, I guess, 72. And when we met, I, I didn't know Art in New York, even though we were both working in comics in New York. He, he moved out to San Francisco a year or so after I did. So we met in San Francisco and became instantly... Um, you know, friendly, and, and we felt we both had the same sort of ideas about comics. And At that point, comics, underground comics, were, were still that feeling that, that we were all in this thing together. But very shortly after that, they began to develop into camps, and um, there, was, there were cartoonists who were interested in, in you know, supporting the counterculture as their main thrust of their comics, like uh, Dave Sheridan doing the, the Leather Nun and Gilbert Shelton with the fabulous Fairy Freak Brothers. And, and there were other people who were interested in, in a kind of, they were kind of fanboy oriented and they were interested in doing a more X-rated versions of what they loved as kids, the, the EC horror comics that they loved as kids and science fiction. And both of those camps, um, I, neither art or I could could relate to. <laughs> mm -hmm. We we were more interested in satirical um, and literary comics, and me more in humor than art. But art was certainly, you know, he had lots of um, comedic skills. But my my basic feeling about comics was that you were supposed to laugh at them. Yes, they were not supposed to be shallow in the, um, you know simple punchline kind of laughing, but but the, the, the laughter was supposed to be part of it, and that the, the, a big part of comics were um, also to include some of the things that are, that are thought of as artistic, that they could be autobiographical, they could be literary, they could explore things that uh, other art forms explored, that comics were a place for people to experiment in all kinds of ways. That, because um, partly because they're such a wonderful union of writing and, and drawing. So after short order um, came out, I think two issues, seventy two, seventy three. There was this Supreme Court ruling, which I think was in seventy three, that defined pornography as something that was to be decided by community standards. And following that decision, underground comics were busted like crazy all over the country. And and as as was other forms that they thought were, were porn, because comics, underground comics were full of sex and violence, and they were perceived of by uh, misguided uh, police and district attorneys across the country as for children, because after all, they were comics, and comics had to be only for children. Mm -hmm. And here we were uh, 
exposing children to these to these um, disgusting pornographic topics. And of course, Crumb's response to that was to do Joe Blow and his family <laughs> having you know incest cover to cover. Uh, so that that economically that did put a chill on underground comics for a little while, and, and it uh, a couple of years. And arcade was. Art and I decided that we needed a, a life raft. We needed something to get us out of this world where the comics were distributed through head shops, and head shops were vulnerable to getting busts, and they were limited in their audience anyway. We wanted to get into a wider audience. The idea of Arcade was to find national distribution outside the comic book store world and be displayed side by side with National Lampoon and MAD publications like that mm -hmm. which never happened <laughs> but um, you know what it really was and, and what Raw was later it was the Art and I as editors these were the people whose work we liked that was who we put in the magazine um, we were always open to seeing other stuff and and uh, that's why we had that section in the back of each issue where we had something called the sideshow where we would print half pages by new people. So we were, we were always interested in looking at the work of new new artists, but we basically asked people whose work we really liked. And as Art put it, we were going with the artist, not the work, in many cases. In other, another, in other words, if S. Clay Wilson turned in a, a story, um, we had we weren't going to reject it. We it was we had asked him and we had editorially discussed things with him up to a point and then we trusted him. Mm -hmm. And that's that's how we work with everybody. I don't think we ever rejected anything that once it had once it had started once once we had uh, asked a specific artist to do to do something and talked about it with them a little bit. That was then we let him go. We didn't editorialize beyond that. Um, so, you know, Arcade uh, Arcade used the artists that we had around us at the time, who we knew and whose work we liked. We asked Robert to do the covers so we would have a, our best commercial foot forward. <laughs> and not, not that I didn't love his work and still do, but I always thought, you know, yeah. we were all, we were all, I mean, there was a point when I was annoyed that Robert was always getting all the attention, and we were all, we were always kind of the, you know, crumb and company. You know, we were the end company. But looking back, I mean, he was looking back or looking forward or looking now. Crumb is, crumb is the greatest comic genius that's ever been produced. So, what can I say? One of the things I noticed when talking to underground cartoonists is they all have that crumb aha moment where it was like reading that zap or something by crumb and that's what really fueled them and kind of shifted yeah how they looked at it yeah that happened to me with um zap number one which i picked up um in of all places on times square in a magazine store and 1968 i guess late 68 and it um you know, it, it, it seemed to me that here was a man that must be in his 60s 
because he was drawing in a 1930s comic style. But he was, but he was, he was talking about things that a 65-year-old man would never talk about. And so, what, what what was the story with this guy? Was he was he um, someone who uh, you know who who lived in a um, you know a world of his own invention and just ha happened to 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 uh, connect with with my generation in some strange, accidental, cosmic way that I couldn't understand. I just, I couldn't figure him out. After I laughed my, my ass off at him, I tried to figure out who he was and why, you know, what was what was behind all this, and I just couldn't put it together. I, I remember when I finally found out that he was my age, and, you know, that um, then I started seeing his stuff in the East Village other and before I left for San Francisco and the various underground papers and um, when I realized he was he was uh, uh, my generation I I was surprised and when I finally met him then I realized well he's, he is and he isn't you know mm -hmm. <laughs> he's an old soul he's like he's an, he is a is he, he is a 65 year old man somewhere inside the 25 year old guy and he's not quite you know, Crumb's attitude towards the counterculture. I mean, most of the, the people that read underground comics uh, in, at the time they were coming out, in the late 60s and early 70s, the average hippie, shall we say, uh, they thought Crumb was a hippie. They thought he was one of them. He was far from a hippie. He, w he was an outsider, uh, as were many of us, as, as I was. I remember I attended the first human being in San Francisco in 1967 on a trip out there, and I just sort of stayed by the sidelines. I remember I took pictures and thought it was weird, and I liked Allen Ginsberg, but I didn't quite relate to any, any of the Hare Krishnas. Or <laughs> but Robert was like that, too. Robert, was, Robert thought he was doing satire about hippies. Yeah. They were, and they were reading it, and they were thinking they were being affirmed. They were being championed. They didn't get the satire, <laughs> which 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 maddened and amused him to no end, and me too. It was funny to watch. You know, that's that's why he went so far sometimes in satirizing hippies. That he thought, well, now they now they're not going to be able to think I love them, and they still did usually. You know, who knows? They were, I think, just by depicting. You know, at that point. Picking up a comic book, you know, if you're a, if you're a, a hate street hippie in 1969 and you pick up a crumb comic book and see characters that look like you in the comic, mm -hmm. you, I guess the power of that imagery just kind of uh, it fogs your mind to the point where you can't see that the satire is going on. That it's just that you're being kind of viciously lampooned. Instead, you see it as a affirmation of everything you're doing, all the dope and sex and everything. Because just the imagery is so powerful that, um, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I would watch people read comics when I was first doing them, and um, I, I would watch them, and, and their eyes would always stay, either either they would just look at the pictures or they would just read the balloons. I would, sometimes I would ask somebody, they were in a comic book store, that was picking up a comic, and I'd say, 
you know, what do you what do you think of that strip? And they would either respond as just pictures, you know, they would just talk about the imagery, or they would just talk about the the dialogue. But um, I, I don't know to this day how many people who read comics are really integrating the two aspects of it. But I, I'm saying it just because I think the hippies of the time were responding to to the imagery. They weren't looking. They weren't reading. They weren't really absorbing the intent of, of the artist. They were they were too busy thinking it was all groovy. Is this why something like Justin Green's Binky Brown work really stood out because the imagery was so specific in itself and just so spoke personal, so yeah. much? Well, yeah. I mean, Justin, you're talking about the you know the 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 origin of the graphic novel. I mean, that's Binky Brown. Um, and um, you know, I always would talk. Uh, I, if people would ask me to describe what was what I thought underground comics were, I would say they're they're personal as opposed to corporate. Their intent is 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 um, is, is artistic, not commercial. And um, I mean, Justin Green was the embodiment of, of personal comics, dealing with personal demons and um, autobiography and not to mention his drawings which were also um, they didn't they didn't um, they were drawing Justin Green's drawing style was part and parcel of his of his tortured characters they uh, he was also someone who didn't have a deep um, background in comics. He was someone who came out of out of fine art. Justin actually taught for a couple of years at the Rhode Island School of Design. I remember his last class, he said he stood on his head to get the attention of the class, and the, uh, a, a professor came by and saw him standing on his head and fired him on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of his career. That was probably what drew him into, into comics, he said, because he suddenly... Was that freed from from a nine to five job? That was in the sixties. I would say that would probably yeah be in the late you know just before he started doing comics, so probably sixty seven or so. Oh wow, I had no idea. Yeah, he. I don't know if he graduated from Rhode Island School. He might have graduated, but he, I think he must have. And then he went back there and taught briefly. You. But uh, yeah, Justin's work was. Um, no, my favorite cartoonist then were uh, Art, Justin, and Crum. Then Kim. <laughs> you spoke briefly to the, um, when putting together Arcade, the uh, the literary aspects of the work you guys work in. Uh, would you say Justin's work is probably one of the earliest examples of this kind of literary take on comics? Yeah. Justin, um, Justin was an intellectual at work in comics, and he made no bones about it. He, I mean, he, he didn't he didn't think of himself that way necessarily, but that's what he was. He was someone um, uh, asking the reader to meet him more than halfway, uh, and to um, to drop a lot of preconceptions before they can get into his work. And as a result, Justin had. The limited audience. His work was demanding and too many people obscure and weird, but not in the way that they were used to. Um, he um, 
he wrote his dialogue had a tremendous amount of personality he wrote it, it felt like he was writing short story dialogue you know it felt like these characters and, and these situations were uh, not so much comic as literary and that uh, that that they were coming directly out of his personality and I mean Justin was by no means um, a, a primitive or an outsider mm-hmm. guy like Rory but he had something in common with Rory in that way that he couldn't help doing what he did he did what he did uh, it was coming right out of his gut and it was uh, brutally honest and um, it had a uh, an edge to it that you had to either appreciate or if you didn't appreciate you wouldn't you wouldn't um, you wouldn't get beyond the first few panels but uh, it, was, it was smart smart comics very smart comics you talking about um, forcing the reader to think made me think of getting back to you and with Zippy is um, it's not a simple comic strip whereas it's not a gag, you know. There's not a a punch in every in every strip, and I wonder for you telling your own comics um, that importance of having this thoughtfulness to the work, this kind of requiring the reader to kind of take it in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I I I mean, this is not original with me, but I mm-hmm. try to basically please myself. I'm my first audience, so I want to make a strip that I like. Um, most daily strip cartoonists uh, of today, especially, are the opposite. They are interested primarily in uh, joke telling and um, the kind of the kind of humor you see in in TV sitcoms and um, they are they are consciously trying to please an audience, and I mean even a strip like Dilbert, which is, I guess a uh, a higher form of that than most. Um, I remember when Dilbert, when when, uh, when the strip began, I remember reading an interview with Scott Adams where he said he he literally asked his readers during the first year of this trip which characters they wanted to see more of and which ones they wanted to see less of. And then he acted accordingly. He did what they said. Yeah. I, I go the opposite way. I just want to do what I want to do. And if you like it, if you want to come along for the ride, great. If you don't, that's okay too. I'm happy with a, a so-called cult audience because it's. I mean, if it's a cult, it's a, it's it's made me a living in comics for all these years, so I can't complain. I don't feel I ever cater to anybody in particular. I um, I do think I am a humorist, <laughs> and I think I provide. I know I know from book signings and from slide talks and lots of public appearances that I make a lot of people laugh. Not everybody, <laughs> by any <laughs> means, a very select elite group. But I make them laugh, uh, literally, laugh out loud, and that's that's uh, that that's I know it's uh, it sounds corny, but that's what I that's what I want the most. I want someone to tell me they laughed out loud. 
and that laugh that laugh um, doesn't usually come from you know the, the slapstick punchline because I don't provide that it comes from somewhere else and I think I hope that the laughs that I get are coming from somewhere a little more interesting and a little deeper maybe and shock of recognition kind of laugh and seeing that something that seemed absurd for one second that Zippy said that seemed to make no sense suddenly does make sense in its own way and then you get the laugh there because that's all intentional on my part mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not trying not to be funny I'm trying to be funny <laughs> but in my own in my own language or in Zippy's language in Zippy's language <laughs> um you did I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you did do some kind of audience interaction with, um, you had Zippy going through different American monuments. Would, was that something you involved the audience in, in kind of getting suggestions or... Well, that that all started in, um, in 1998 when I left San Francisco and moved to uh, Connecticut, where I live now. I, as much as I, I loved San Francisco, Having lived there 28 years, I had stopped really noticing my environment much. I lived in the city, I lived in my house, I lived in my studio, and I had my life and my routines and um, my strip, my Zippy strip was about Zippy and Griffey and the other characters. When I came to San Fran when I came to Connecticut, everything got shaken up. I looked around me and I was somewhere else <laughs> that I'd never been. I had visited but never lived, I started to, and I had this hyper-awareness of everything around me. And I noticed in my part of Connecticut there were all these diners, and they really grabbed my attention. And there were all these funny things on the side of the road, these muffler men and giant ducks and giant bowling pins. And Because where I live, I'm not in the town, I'm in the kind of country, so I have to drive everywhere. And when you drive around here, you see stuff that you don't normally see when you if you just live in the confines of your you know 20 block radius of a city where you live so i started noticing things and so i decided to have zippy i don't really know where that first happened probably somewhere in 1998 or 1999 strip where i think zippy started talking to a giant bowling pin which exists about 10 miles from here it's still there just by the side of the road it's a bowling alley and uh, it just it it grabbed me. It actually it, its its origins started in San Francisco, where Zippy would talk to a, a, a giant dachshund head called the Doggy, uh, which was a um, a part of a chain, a, a defunct chain of hot dog restaurants in San Francisco called Doggy Diners. <laughs> there was one in the Mission District where I lived when I was there that was still open. So I I, so I I did a, my very first Zippy encountering the doggy actually was done in 1972 or 70 early 70s um, in a strip that I did where I just I had Zippy um, shimmying up this pole to where the doggy had this doggy was a uh, a kind of a morose looking realistic cartoony giant dachshund with a chef's hat and he spun around on a pole. And I always thought it was very weird. He looked kind of 
He looked kind of um, satanic, too. He's reddish, giant eyes, huge bulb nose. And the implication, I always thought, was that it's kind of wrong. You know, it, it made you think that the hot dogs were made out of dogs, you know. And somehow dog meat was involved. <laughs> but I guess the, I, the, the thought behind it was dachshunds look like hot dogs. But all there was was a giant head. There was no body. So you just saw this huge head. So it was very compelling. And I used to see it all the time. And it turned out it was designed by a Disney artist years and years ago. So it, was, it had that you know, fully fleshed, very realistic, um, hyper-realistic quality, beautifully sculpted. So that's where Zippy first started talking to... Um, to uh, um, like monuments? To, yeah, to to objects, to to uh, to non-living objects, and they started talking back too. So when I when I came here, as I said, I started noticing these other things, and Zippy started talking to them too. And um, then people, readers, started sending me photographs because I used real photograph. I used photographs as ba as the basis for all of these things. Photographs that I took. Um, and readers would see that I was doing this, and they would send in suggestions and say, have you seen this diner or this roadside attraction or this crazy sign or whatever? And they would send me pictures, and so I would I would use them. And if I used them, I would give them a little tip inside the strip, and you can start looking in my stuff from 98 or so on, and you'll see very often this a little, little uh, strip of writing going up the side of a panel saying, tip of the pin to and it lists someone's name, and that always means that's the person that sent me the photographs. Um, it's not, there was no more contribution in terms of um, content, just, just the images, just mm -hmm. location. And um, I always thought it was really appropriate that, that a character as unreal as Zippy would be dealing with these unreal things, but they were real in the real world. It was all these levels of reality and unreality all swirling around each other that I thought was very interesting. And um, that kept going. It's, it's still, I still do them occasionally, though it did, it did taper off about uh, 2006 when I started, uh, 2007 when I started my, my next big um, reinvention of my comic strip when I created this town called Dingberg where Zippy lives and where everybody's been in. And that's kept me going for years. I don't know what the next one is, but there'll be another one. Welcome to Dingberg is the uh, the Fanographics book. If you yes, that's the out. first, and then there's one after that called Ding, uh, Ding Dong Daddy from Dingberg. <laughs> and um, Dingberg, uh, in the Welcome to Dingberg book, I actually, I, I, I depict on the cover the main street of Dingberg, which is a fold-out, and then on the back of it is an aerial map of the town. I, I just, it, it's, one of, it's another thing, the, this is probably true for many, many daily strip cartoonists. When you do something every day, things evolve and change in ways that you're not aware of until they get to a certain critical mass. So in Dingberg strips, the first one I did, I just had a uh, what I thought was a casual one-time idea. I would say that there was a town called Dingberg, and that um, I didn't I didn't even play Sippy in it at first. I just thought it was a, it was a town that uh, existed 
17 miles west of Baltimore, and that everybody in it was a pinhead, and they had a long history, and they had had um, uh, I think I had they had they'd been abandoned there in the early 1800s, and um, lived in a kind of closed-in world for decades, and they had some involvement with the Civil War. I, I made up a whole bunch of strange little facts about this place that I just thought about as a casual idea. And then within a few weeks, I thought, I'll do another one. And I said, OK, I'll do one more. And then I got Zippy into it. And then I realized that Zippy had uh, found his, his hometown and that this was something worth exploring. And I'm still doing it. Do you have a certain fascination with kind of this general idea of Americana and like American yeah well I think I think what I, what I like and what I put in my strips is what I call brand X America mm -hmm. you know the non the non McDonald's America the, the kind of um, roadside America and Americana that is expressed by um, uh, by people who are probably they're doing things for like for commercial reasons, but they're not really commercial because they're kind of primitive and weird. Mm -hmm. So, like, um, you know, the Muffler Man is a prime example. The Muffler Man is a 15-foot-high kind of Paul Bunyan-esque character created as a mascot for a muffler company in the early 60s and st stood in front of the muffler stores holding a giant muffler. But when you looked at him, there was something kind of scary about him and weird and, um, uh, you know, his, his expression and his, his, the stiffness of his pose, uh, this, this was not the work of, of a corporate, you know, boardroom having decided to, mm -hmm. um, to create a mascot and, and an image for their company. This was something sort of going on on some sort of unconscious level and therefore much more interesting. Um, and then over the years, the muffler men lost their mufflers and they started holding other things and they, they, they were abandoned and then they suddenly crop, cropped up in front of a, you know, a donut shop and they're holding a donut instead of a muffler. And uh, This kind of stuff is fascinating to me. It's all over the place. and. It uh, it's always in in danger of extinction because at any given moment um, these things can be wiped out. They're not looked upon as as art, and they're done by um, small businesses usually. For uh, you know, they're kind of hark back to to almost like a medieval way of of, of dealing with uh, commerce, like. The muffler man is, is the equivalent of a, you know, in in the in the Middle Ages when pre-literate times you you would have a giant shoe outside your shoe store, uh, your shoe shop for shoe repair. People mm. would see the giant shoe and they'd say, "Oh, that's where I go get in my shoe repairs, shoes repair." They didn't. The word shoe repair wouldn't have meant anything to them because they couldn't read. So the, the these giant objects would dangle from from poles in front of stores, and that's sort of where these these current versions, that's where they come from. And um, 
they're usually one of a kind, and they're um, they have a tremendous kind of presence and power um, to me, and they seem to be on the verge of speaking, <laughs> which is what I take where I take off from with them. I have um, I have Zippy start uh, Zippy hears them and they they talk back and forth. I've been speaking with Bill Griffith, the author of the Loss and Found uh, comics, 1969 to 2003, as well as the ongoing uh, Zippy the Pinhead uh, strips, all available from the fine folks of Fanographics. As well, uh, we were discussing Arcade, which I think Last Gasp may still carry some, and finer comic stores. Print Mint, are they still selling, though? No, no. No. <laughs> you can... You can buy them. Um, there, are, when I when I left, when Arcade died, Art and I both got I think a hundred copies of each issue. So I've still got some copies for sale on the Zippy the Pinhead website. Oh, okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I heartily recommend Arcade. It's one of my personal favorites. Um, it's a it's it's kind of a special artifact of a particular point in time in comics. Um, kind of that transition area between the underground to kind of the art house era of the 80s. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Bill, for taking the time with me today to talk comics. That was my pleasure. Somewhere there's music, I'll the Somewhere there's That you love me, it's out of you Somewhere there's music, I'll dare how far Somewhere there's heaven, it's where you are The darkest night would shine if you would come to me soon Until you will, I'll still my heart, I'll hide the moon Yeah.